the congregation here for the opportunity to be part of the lectureship program. Uh, always great to come out here and to see people that we've known for many, many years. Uh, although I find it a little culture shock because what you know you kind of think of as little kids are not so little anymore. And sometimes they're young adults and married and it's like, do I know you? <laughs> kind of a weird feeling. But uh, I know that for us in Winnipeg, we have a very strong feeling and connection with the congregation here, as I know you do for us. All right, what we have been doing for the last two days is talking about Galatians. And if you think about the reading, uh, was Galatians 1, it was the beginning of Paul's letter. And so as we kind of get into this, uh, first thing I want to do is to uh, do a bit of a review. I'm going the wrong way. Okay. Okay. Um, Galatians is, is not a very big book. It's only six chapters. Uh, Paul has a marvelous ability to pack a lot of information, a lot of ideas in a very short space. Uh, and as you think about this letter, uh, and for those who have not been part of our previous lessons, uh, the book of Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. Uh, it was Martin Luther's favorite book, and his commentary on Galatians, uh, I like to say it, it's not six chapters. It's massive. It's about that thick. Uh, but it's quite an important work, and many things have come out of that. And as we talked about, uh, one of the challenges is that uh, ultimately the faith-only theology comes out of that book, uh, which is kind of problematic. Uh, and we'll touch on some things as we go. But what Paul is writing to address is the problem of Judaizing teachers. Those who have been here have heard me say that a lot. But, you know, when false teaching comes in, sometimes it takes a lot of work to sort it back out and to get it straightened out again. Uh, and we, we noted that the word works is only used ten times in the whole six chapters. And four of those are not really relevant because the word works could be used in, in other ways, but the six times that it is used, it is always works of the law that it's referring to. That what Paul is trying to do is to deal with issues related to the law of Moses and the fact that the Judaizing teachers are telling new Gentile Christians that you must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be a Christian. And you think about how that is kind of heaping and piling up all kinds of ideas on there. So last night we talked about the idea that uh, in Judaism there were, there are, uh, they have a list of 613 commandments, uh, mikvah that come from the Old Testament. They don't call it the Old Testament, they call it from the Bible, but 
613. And that is remembered on their uh, special clothing that the men wear that has tassels hanging down at the corners. And each tassel is composed of several strands and they're wound and tied with knots and the combined total of knots and strands is 613 to help them remember all of the laws, all of the mikvats of God's, of the Torah. And, you know, we had a lot of conversation about that. We had a lot of conversation before when the night before I said, you know, remember the number 613 and I had people, is it an area code? Is it a date? Is it the number of pieces of chicken we're going to have? Uh, and so when we got down to the idea that this is the Jewish understanding of God's law. And we kind of closed with the question last night about, you know, can you imagine having a religion where there are 613 commands, not to mention all the traditions that evolved because of the commands? It just would be burdensome and oppressive. We saw Paul talk about the fact that I'm imperfect. You know, it's not that the law failed me. I failed the law. And the problem is that the law was not intended to be permanent. You know, Paul makes the point that God made the promise to Abraham and 430 years later, the law came. And for the Jews of Jesus' time and following, you know, they're stuck on the law, but they're forgetting that Abraham himself was not Jewish, wasn't even Israelite. Israel was his grandson. He didn't descend from Israel. He was the progenitor. So the law has become totally uh, overarching. Forgetting that there was a promise to Abraham that by your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Paul is trying to take that theme through this letter. And we basically see the idea in the New Testament when I think we look at what it is really to be a Christian is that we don't live by rule or law, we live by principle. You know, the two great commands, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are so many things that would be solved if we would really genuinely follow those. So, we want to spend our time just kind of beginning with this statement in, in chapter one. And one of the things about Galatians, as you work on studying uh, some of these letters in the New Testament, uh, I'm going to really alienate myself here from a lot of people. But sometimes I like listening to uh, classical music. I like listening to some of the, the, the really great pieces where you, know, you kind of come to realize that as you listen to them, you hear certain themes that come out in different parts of, of the symphony. And I'm going to suggest to you that, that in Galatians, that through the first three chapters, that what Paul is 
playing is a, a symphony to the Gentile Christians who are being troubled by the Judaizing teachers and who have been, and he has different ways of putting it, who have been distracted, uh, cut in on, tripped from following Christ by that. In chapter 4, we'll come to that in just a minute, he changes the theme to talk to the Jewish Christians. So, we'll see kind of how that goes. So, Galatians 1, 1 to 5, which we just heard, Paul addresses them and talks about how Jesus gave himself. In other words, what he wants to do is say, okay, let's, let's go back to square one. One of the stories that I've always gotten a kick out of, and I've, I heard it many, many years ago, was how Vince Lombardi, the famous football coach of the Green Bay Packers, when he first went in to, to take over the team, the first meeting with the players, and imagine, these are, these are professional football players, and he comes to them and he says, okay, gentlemen, we're going to start square one. This is a football. And someone has said that he did that after that every year. But, you know, sometimes we've got to go back to the basics. So Paul says, all right, let's go back to the basics. Christ gave himself for our sins. Did the same thing to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers, about the gospel I preached to you, which you heard, which you received, by which you're saved, unless you believed in vain. What? Christ Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. You know, a Christianity that's not based on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross is not Christianity. Somebody, uh, one of the people that, that sometimes visits some of our activities, and she and I have had some discussions, and, and she remembers reading about a, a, a denominational minister, uh, and I had seen the article, I actually used it in a sermon several years ago, who, she's in the United Church in uh, Toronto, and she's an atheist. Huh? Uh, that, that really has got this woman totally confused. Like, how, how can you be a minister and be an atheist? Isn't that a contradiction? But one of the other things is that this, this particular minister has become quite famous for saying, I am not going to let somebody else's blood be the basis of my relationship and life. We are the people of Christ who died for our sins, who was buried and who rose and ascended back to heaven and is coming back. And if we lose touch with that, we've lost touch with everything for eternity. So, Paul says that he gave himself for our sins to rescue or save us from this evil generation. And I kind of rephrase it to, to fulfill God's plan, uh, but that's essentially what Paul is saying there. That he did this according to God's will. And 
I put it at the end, but it's really at the beginning to create a new people. You know, it's interesting that Paul addresses the church at churches of Galatia in a collective way as brothers and sisters. There's Jew, there's Gentile. You know, all these different human differences, but Paul just sees this one people. So, the problem, verses 6 through 9. You're deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. Now, think about the relatively short time that has happened from when they became Christians to when Paul is writing this letter. And they're already getting off track. And you can understand why sometimes as you read this letter, Paul has some very sharp things to say about these false teachers. That there's a different gospel. One that confuses you and perverts the message. And he points out there really is no other gospel. There's no other good news. In fact, the message that's being proclaimed to them is really bad news. And so the reality is, is these people, the false teachers and their followers, are opposing God and his work. That's why there is this very strong anathema that Paul repeats twice. If anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be a courage. I'm going to say it again. You know, in case you weren't hearing, listening. So, very, very sharp in these first three chapters about the false teachers and about those who are following them. So, flip over to chapter four. And now, let's read it. Paul says, what I'm saying and he's, he's using the, the image that Paul has just closed chapter 3 with that we're going to read at the end. And the idea that uh, when we're baptized into Christ, you know, we are God's children. And if we're God's children, then we become his heirs. So what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, and this is the image he's using about the law, uh, that the Jews had the law to bring them to Christ, to the fulfillment of the promise. But as long as the heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. When you think about it, neither a slave nor a child can go into the master and say, I want my money right now. Right. Not going to happen. The child may own the estate technically, but the father, even if he's passed, may have left criteria. For example, may have, you know, we, we would look at it that the father may have said until the child reaches the age of majority, or until the child graduates from university, or until the child reaches the age of 30, hoping they'll gain sense by that point. The father can set any provision in his will that he wants to. 
So the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. That's part of the provisions of the will. So also, when we were underage, and you notice that we, see this is how you see that he's talking to the Jewish Christians. He's, so when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Those are the Jews. To redeem those born those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Uh, you know, the interesting thing here, as I, as I read this and I think about the Jewish Christians might be going, huh? We're children of Abraham. Yeah, but are you really children of God? Jesus died so that you may be adopted fully into sonship with God. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit which calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. So back to the Gentiles. So to the Jewish Christians, it's like, why go back? Think about what it is that you have. You had the law as a guardian all of that time. We talked about that last night. And that an heir is no different from a slave, which would be kind of hard to deal with, but subject to the trustee for that time until the time set by the father. And so we'll be slaves until then. But see, what happened? All right. God sent his son. You know, that is such a simple message. You know, it's one of those things that we all can, you know, we, how many times do we say something like John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, haven't seen it for a while. Well, football hasn't been on for one thing. But, you know, you, you watch a football game and you see somebody in the crowd always holding up a sign. John 3.16. Most people in our culture don't have any idea what that means. Those who have some faith do. God sent his son into the world. That's the premise that it's built on. He was born a woman, born under the law. There's a continuity that God's established here. You know, think about it. Abraham, those centuries before the law, Jesus coming to fulfill the law. I mean, the law is a cardinal part of this. But... He came to redeem those. To buy them back. One of the most interesting books that I think I ever found was one called Slaves, Citizens, and Sons. And I don't remember who wrote it. And I wish I did. 
But I have referred to that and read that book so many times because it's basically a study of some of the legal concepts in the New Testament world about slavery, citizenship, and sonship. And you imagine a lot of that's about adoption. I know more about adoption in our world. And those who know me know that uh, I was adopted pretty shortly after I was born. And the idea that two total strangers would accept me and love me with no biological responsibility to me. They didn't bring me into this world, but they have created for me a place in their hearts and their home and have made me their son and have made me their heir. That's what love really is, isn't it? So, Paul's saying that, that this is what God has done through Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. God has taken these people, has redeemed them, bought them back. And the language of redemption actually goes more into slavery than sonship, doesn't it? But, whether slave or son, it is that full relationship and full privilege that we are adopted. We become God's children. So, then has put his, the spirit of his son into our hearts. Uh, we get really kerfuffled sometimes when we start talking about the spirit because we think about all the, the uh, abuses of the idea all the misconceptions, all of the emotional things that uh, get wrapped around it. But Paul in Romans talks about the idea that the idea of the spirit, you know, uh, being in us, communicating to God for us. Uh, I think one of the most powerful ideas in Romans is that when we get upset, when we are dealing with major calamity, sometimes it may be the sudden death of a loved one. Maybe it may be a health problem of ourselves or somebody we're close to. Maybe the loss of a job. That we just cannot find words to pray. You ever have that experience? That feeling? I just don't know what I could possibly say here. I, my tongue suddenly got 10 feet thick. And I just can't express it. And loose paraphrase, but basically Paul says, don't worry about it. God's spirit is communicated to God from your heart. And you can't express it. The spirit can. And the effectiveness of your prayer is not limited to your ability to find the right words. You know, sometimes people, especially those leading public prayer, feel like, I've got to have this really eloquent piece of prose that I'm going to pray to God. How about heart? Prayers are not about great prose, they're about great heart. And as fumblingly, I don't know if that's a word, but as fumblingly as we may try to express what our concerns are, 
the indwelling spirit takes the heart message to our Heavenly Father. And that's one of the most, I think, important ideas about what the Holy Spirit does for us. But here and in Romans is the idea of addressing God as Abba, Father. And we associate that with our language and terms like Daddy that refer to the closeness, the personal intimacy of a relationship with our Creator. And I don't know what that does to you, but that just absolutely blows my mind. Because it is so overwhelming to think of that personal connection. You know, I, you know, Don and I have six grandkids, and our youngest is two and a half now. And calls her Nana and calls me Papa, and when he wants to talk about both of us, it becomes Napa. And, you know, hearing him say that, that's called a warm fuzzy. (laughs) It's just the idea that with the creator of the universe, God's spirit is helping us to speak in such uh, personal, intimate language. So he pours puts the spirit of his son into our hearts and addresses him as Abba Father. But then the last point he says is that we're heirs of God. There's a song, I think it's in in these songbooks. I I learned it many, many years ago when I was in high school. Many years ago. Uh, And I'm the child of a king. The child of a king. With Jesus my Savior, I'm the child of a king. And you think about how often we as Christians get overwhelmed. And sometimes afraid to own up to our faith and acknowledge that we're Christians. You know, I joked about the, the idea that, you know, when I, I was in a public high school down in Connecticut... Uh, two-thirds of the way through a disastrous school year because I was starting to fail courses that I had passed the year before. They had kept moving me back. And I just didn't care. And so we found out about Great Lakes Christian College or the high school in Ontario. And we decided, we talked it over because... My parents were at their wits end, like, what in the world are we going to do with this kid? And so they proposed the idea of me going off to Great Lakes. You know, I told my friends, I'm going off to GLCC at Great Lakes Community College. I didn't want them to know, Christian. And we do that sometimes, don't we? We're talking to somebody, they say, well, what are you? I'm a Christian. Yet, Paul says we're heirs. You know, if you were an heir, oh, 
let's say, to Bill Gates. I started to say Donald Trump. I, no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> if you were an heir to Bill Gates and you had some claim to his wealth, do you think you would not tell anybody about that? First thing we do is have it up on Facebook, right? Or whatever social media you're into. We're heirs. Joint heirs with Christ. So, I want to ask the question, given what God has done for me, given what God has done for you, with all these things that Paul has just listed here, the redemption the salvation, the forgiveness, the adoption, the inheritance, the indwelling of his spirit, being able to, to be personal and intimate. What's the least thing I can do in return? Now, there's two ways we can take that expression. One of them is to deal with it in terms of the minimums. Okay? And you think how many people approach their religious faith as a minimum? How about those who only remember God on Christmas and Easter? Other than that, there's no place in their life. I remember when I was younger, I think when I was a teenager, there was a thing going around to say, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I think about stories that have happened to me over the years. Uh, many years ago, when we first got out of school, I was working as an assistant manager in a uh, discount store. We had, a, um, you know, among all of our stock, uh, we had a section of uh, greeting cards. And the card salesman came in to check the stock, as he did periodically. And we got into a conversation, and he was telling the, you know, I stereotypical salesman telling the smutty jokes, using the language. And somehow in the course of the conversation, I mentioned being involved with Great Lakes Christian College. And boy, did that conversation change. Because he was supposed to be a member of another congregation in the area. Whoa. One time I was flying from Winnipeg. Uh, I don't remember where I was going, but I was a whole bunch of guys from the States, from Texas. A bunch of fishermen going back. And guess what? Same kind of thing, all the, the jokes, the language. And it turns out the guy beside me is supposed to be a member of the church in Abilene. That conversation suddenly got very quiet. Many people do and deal with the minimums. But given what God has done for us, And who we are because of that and what we enjoy in eternity, 
how can we deal with just those minimal type behaviors? But actually, what's the least I could do actually becomes something like what's the most I you know I. So let's go through a list here, fairly quickly. I think of some things that suggest our place in all of this. All right. Dale took us on a great study and discussion of the idea of faithfulness. That's really what chapter one implies. You know, if we are an angel from heaven, preach to you. We need to be faithful to our God. We need to be faithful to our message, not to allow it to be tampered with or changed. It's the good news of God's Son giving his life on the cross for our sins. Why would anybody want to change that? And yet, obviously, somebody did. I think one of the important themes of the book of Galatians is not getting caught up in the law, not allowing somebody to substitute the freedom we have in Christ and the joy that comes with that for, and Paul uses words like slavery and bondage. I'm free. You're free if you're a Christian. Paul speaks of crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. Sometimes I like reading uh, Christianity Today. I subscribe to it. They have some really good cartoons sometimes. As several months ago, there was a cartoon of a Bible study group that were talking. One of the guys in the group says, I don't think I have crucified sin, but I've felt faint a couple of times. For many religious people, we are not willing to crucify sin in our lives. We want to flirt with it. One of my favorite examples of that was a story, and I've told it many times. You've probably heard me tell it. Uh, was that the, the, you know, sometimes people, and I hope this doesn't tie somebody up in knots here, but sometimes people say the same thing in their prayers every time. And so this one brother always said, Lord, clean out the cobwebs in our lives. And finally, one of the other guys in the, in the church just couldn't take it anymore and screamed out when this guy said it, Don't do it, Lord. Kill the spider. <laughs> you know, we sometimes just want these little cosmetic changes instead of the righteous life that comes with Christ. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. You know, Paul has listed the works of the flesh right before that, and man, what a mess, right? You know, the tragic thing is, and I'm not going to read through the list, but as I read through that list, I think I have known a church member or two who has demonstrated those, and unfortunately, some of them even at church. 
And so Paul then says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such there is no law. How can you object to genuine love or peace or patience? I had somebody a number of years ago that I was dealing with, and he was a real problem. He'd phone me in the middle of the night drunk and trying to provoke me into something. And basically he would say to me, I want you to get mad at me. I want you to lose control. And I'm pretty sure that if I were younger, I might have. But I'd reached the point that I understood that the, the dealing with somebody like that and he'd say, why aren't you getting mad at me? And I would say, because I'm not going to let a person like you determine what kind of person I am. Yeah, it's gutsy. But that guy's a Christian today. Paul is not talking about, and I think it's important to keep this in mind, Paul's not talking about just individual fruit spray. You know, it's not like walking into the fruit department at the grocery store. He's talking about a basket of fruit where all of these are part of and demonstrations of our relationship with God and the kind of person we are because of that. If Jesus has done all of this for me, shouldn't I be the kind of person that demonstrates him in every way that I possibly can. One of the most interesting expressions I think that Paul uses in here, he says, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm concerned for you until Christ is formed in you. Isn't that a wonderful idea? That our growth, and we're all at different stages of that growth, our growth is bringing us to be more and more like Jesus. And so to think of it in terms of the idea that there is something happening inside of us that's transforming and producing an inner character that is shaped and looks like Jesus. Physically, I'm not going to look like a first century Jew in Palestine. I don't think that's going to work. But I can be like Jesus. And that what needs to happen is for me to change inside there was a book came out a number of years ago. I, you know, when I when I bought it, it was really interesting because it's a management book. I happened to buy it in Halls, which is a religious bookstore. Well, thirteen errors most managers make and how you can avoid it. And one of the chapters is on changing behavior without changing heart. Think about it. See, that's why we end up with a whole lot of rules, because we're trying to manage our bad behavior by having rules. Well, what we need to be doing is becoming like Christ on the inside and letting that come out. But then when all of that comes together, isn't it about sharing the gospel? Isn't it about telling Jesus Telling people the story of our Lord? Isn't it that God's Son came into the world, born of woman, 
that he died for our sins. He died to redeem us, died to create us as his people, died to give us eternal life. How do we sit on that story? There was, a number of years ago, uh, we had a workshop in the church in Hamilton. And the guy came in and he was from a congregation over in Michigan and they were just going great guns. And they were using all kinds of gimmicks. And initially, I, you know, I'm not a fan of gimmicks. But he wore this little button that said, don't quit. And you know, you go around with him in different places and people would look at that little pin on him button and that said, don't quit. And they'd say, what does that mean? Don't quit smoking? And he'd say, no, that's to, to help you help me not to forget telling people about Jesus. Now, when that happened, the people suddenly got a deer in the headlight look. Like, how fast can I get away from this guy? But it made me realize that having conversations with people that steer toward our faith, where people can say to us, you know, one of the things that's really important is that they ask us, who are you? Why are you? Why are you the kind of person that you are? That's because of my faith. Because I believe in Jesus. And then let them ask questions that pursue that instead of unloading everything we know and believe on them in five minutes. Not going to happen in five minutes, is it? It'll be more like five hours. And after about five minutes, they're going to wish that they were out of there. But we've got good news. You know, that's at the heart of what Paul's saying in Galatians. We have got good news. Don't let anybody change it. Tell it. God's son died on the cross for our sins. I want to close with a passage. We don't have this up on the uh, board, but this is from Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, beginning verse 26, down to 29. I want to say one thing here. Remember I told you that Galatians was, has been called Luther's book on the faith-only doctrine? Kind of generated out of Luther's writings and out of this look at Galatians. What I found really interesting is when I got a hold of Luther's commentary on Galatians, one of the first places I went was Galatians 3.27. I want to see, what does Luther say about baptism? And what was interesting is he talked about what he called the fantastical spirits that deny the majesty and efficacy of baptism. Huh? Majesty? Efficacy means power. He said, baptism is the new birth. I didn't expect that. My impression was Luther was going to do everything he could to explain away baptism. 
Instead, he believed what Paul said here, that baptism was where we're born again in Christ. So what Paul wrote is, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's live like his children and his heirs.